0: Coming to you from WUGA in Athens, Georgia, this is Aqua Thread, a podcast that illustrates the connections in our world from land to water to people and everything in between. We work to bring you new voices and often underrepresented perspectives on many intertwined topics. I'm your host, Jenna Jambeck, an environmental engineering professor at the University of Georgia. And each episode I'm joined by a rotating set of co-hosts, mostly in their early career. This episode, I have Madison Warner, an environmental anthropologist and project manager for the Circularity Informatics Lab at the University of Georgia with me. Hi, Madison. How are you doing? Hey, Jenna. I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Now, we work together full time, um, which is so exciting. Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, whatever you want to share about your background, and then um, how did we end up working together?
1: Yeah, so I'm an environmental anthropologist and project manager, Um, as you said, I grew up in a small rural town in northwest Georgia, and I was always pretty curious about the world. So when I ended up going to UGA for my undergraduate, I majored in anthropology and women's studies, and I minored in sociology. Um, so, as a freshman, I had the opportunity to help a professor with research in Indonesia, where we worked with a local artist and activist named Made Bayek. And he facilitated what he called plasticology workshops. So, he would lead people out into the environment, they would collect trash and debris, and then they would come back to his studio and make it into artwork. So, he was also a musician, and a lot of his activism revolved around issues related to consumerism globalism, tourism, stuff like that. And he did a great job of tying in all of those issues to pollution and waste. So that was really my first experience that made me begin thinking about plastic and plastic waste as an inherently human issue. Um, And additionally, because I was from a rural area, there was very little infrastructure to aid in recycling or any other type of circular economy activities aside from people naturally reusing things because they couldn't afford to buy new things Um, so that lack of infrastructure in addition to people's focus really being on putting food on the table instead of recycling um, i think that my upbringing as well as the experience in indonesia really sort of primed me to think about waste and quote-unquote trash as a visual manifestation of the different levels of inequalities Mm -hmm. that we see today, um, which I feel like has helped in the work that we do together. Um, And then I met you, Jenna, when you were actually giving a talk for the UGA Women's Studies Department. Um, My roommate told me about you, and I researched you ahead of time, and I tried to come up with stuff for us to talk about so it wouldn't be, like, weird or awkward. Um, And I've (laughs) actually never told you this before, but I almost did not come to your talk I had felt sick the night before, but I didn't want to miss your presentation. So I like took a NyQuil, I passed out at 7 p.m., and I skipped my morning class that day. So I'm glad I ended up going because, I mean, we've been working together for three years since. So.
0: Yeah. Wow. I, yeah, I didn't know that part of the story, but I certainly, uh, you, you did your prep very well because when, you, when we talked afterwards, hearing about your work in Indonesia um, really piqued my interest and, and just your entire background. Um, so you graduated not too long ago. I was on your master's committee um, and I know that you were exploring yes. many career paths uh, after that. And then you sort of had an epiphany um that you liked the work that you were doing, uh, which was with us, and not only wanted to stay with it, but do more. so of course i'm I was incredibly happy because we had just gotten a new NSF award and and really your expertise is so key um, to that work, and we needed your help for sure. So can you kind of describe the process what what made you come to that point?
1: Yeah, so that process was really painful <laughs> mm. um. I graduated with my master's degree in May of 2022, last year, and that was the first time in my life that I was really able to self-determine and that brought on a lot of self-doubt and anxiety for me. Um, I'd spent my whole life up until that point focusing on getting into college, then being in college, then getting into grad school, then being in grad school. and. I think because of that, all of my validation came from being a good student. And when school ended, I suddenly didn't have that validation anymore. Hmm. So by the time I was done and everything, you know, was finished, I had this moment of like, okay, that was fine and all college was great, whatever, but what am I supposed to do now? I didn't have a roadmap. And that was just absolutely terrifying for me. So, I had no clue what I wanted to do, but the only thing I did know is that I wanted to make money. Um, And while I can say in retrospect that having money as your North Star is never a wise decision, it really seemed like it at the time because our culture equates success and fulfillment to having money, Mm -hmm. even though that never actually seems to be the case. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was desperately also like... I was also desperately comparing myself to my peers and I was judging my other peers for their life decisions about what they were doing after college because I was obviously just projecting and feeling insecure. Um, So I'm not proud of how I acted during that period of my life, but I'm glad that I went through it because I think it made me kinder and more understanding toward others as well as myself. Um, And after a while of spinning my wheels, and applying to so many jobs and not getting an offer, I had this sort of come to Jesus moment where I was like, okay, maybe the universe is looking after me. Maybe what I think I want is not actually what I need. Um, And I began thinking about the type of job that would align with my core values and needs, as well as what type of sacrifices that I was not and was willing to make. So I knew I didn't wanna be in an office or commuting all the time. I knew that i wanted to do good work where i felt like i was both making a difference and where i didn't have to look out for someone else's bottom line um and i also knew that i wanted to be in a place an environment where i felt valued respected and protected because i've been in work environments that were the exact opposite and i know how quickly that can wear you down so Mm -hmm. around that time that I had this like epiphany, as you said, we were receiving the NSF grant, and I realized that the quote unquote dream job I'd been chasing was one that I could actually just create for myself at the CIL because the CIL had already met all of my core values and needs. So everything ended up working out the way it was supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> and I wish I could have told myself that in May of 2022, but I needed that period to regroup and like deal with myself. Um, and I'm grateful that I've been working with you, Jenna, throughout what has felt like so many different points in my life and through what's felt like many different iterations of me, mm-hmm. even though I've only been working with you for a few years.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it hasn't been a long time, but at the same time, we have been through a lot. Well, you have been through a lot and really appreciate you sharing uh, those stories. I think a, a lot of people can relate to those and, and so glad that you felt like our space is is one that fit you. Um, And now that, you know, sort of you've transitioned into your your work life now after graduation, you've been you've told me that you've been able to pick up some hobbies and do some things for you in your free time. I think it's it's so important to do whatever regenerates you, take time away from things that take energy. So I'm curious what what's one of your current or some of your current favorite things to do that that feel regenerative for you?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I have been able to have hobbies again, and that's been really nice in general, but the most regenerative activities that I've been doing is getting back into music. Um, I grew up playing the piano from the age of five to 17, and I almost majored in performance piano in college, and I also sang for over nine years. So I'm finally able to get back into these things again. And it's been really fun, but it's also made me feel very, vulnerable and emotional. There was a lot of crying the first couple of weeks. Mm. Um, I really had to get over myself and my ego and my anger and frustration about about feeling like I lost so much valuable time by not playing music in college. But I'm so grateful that I've been able to just jump back into it. I think music has always been there for me, even when I didn't think I needed it. Mm. And now that I'm not pursuing piano in any type of career sense. I've been able to focus on just having music as a hobby and as an emotional processing tool just for me and not having that love be corrupted by trying to monetize it, which is, I think, a big reason why I decided to quit in the first place. So, yeah, I've been just figuring out a lot about myself (laughs) since I got (laughs) out of school.
0: That all all makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, things that, yeah, I think it's much different to play or, or do something, you know, just for you as opposed to thinking you need to be you know, making money while you're doing it. So I'm really glad that you're able to get back to that and would love to hear you play piano and sing sometime, but no pressure. Um, I
1: can play piano, I just can't (laughs) sing for an audience. (laughs) Not yet. Not yet.
0: All right. Um, So, yeah, let's talk about today's episode. We're going to talk about the coast, uh, the importance of water and history in our lives, and how a shipwreck relates to the circular economy. Uh, You might even find out what a moon cusser is. So I grew up myself on a river, and when I visited my dad and stepmom in Florida, I also saw the ocean. But having that river in my backyard in Minnesota was one of the most, if not the most significant driver of my love for the environment. It was called the Snake River, and it it flowed out of Pine City past my backyard, which was nine miles out of that tiny town, to the mouth of the St. Croix River, which then separates Minnesota and Wisconsin. The river... In my backyard taught me many things, among them to be brave in the face of fear, resilient, patient, and to both figuratively and literally go with the flow. Mary Breen is an undergraduate history and mathematics major here at UGA. She'll be joining us to talk about the coast she grew up on and how that influenced her and about some really interesting parts of history that relate to recycling and may provide insight on plastic pollution as well. I wanted to add that history is something I really appreciate now, but I have to admit that in junior and senior high school, I did not appreciate it. It's, uh, it seemed to me like history was all about wars and memorizing dates and names, which never really resonated with me. At the time, I just didn't see how knowing these things related to our present or our future. But when I started traveling and seeing historical places, meeting people in those places, hearing the stories behind those places and from the people themselves, then history really sunk in. And now I think it's absolutely critical to our understanding of present day situations. I see it as part of the context and fabric of our world that is so important to know before anything, for example, gets designed and actually collaborative and community integrated designs help bring this context to the forefront where it should be. Um, Madison, I would love to hear your perspective here as well.
1: Yeah, so I think like history and the social sciences, like talking to people in general and connecting those those things. Um it's just necessary for a variety of reasons. So there've been a couple of times where in my job, I'm sitting in a room full of brilliant people, and they're debating about what new thing to do or build. And it's very obvious that many of their obstacles are arising because they haven't actually spoken with people who they are allegedly designing for. Um, This is a reflection of the fact that like people in STEM aren't typically trained in how to talk to other humans, while people in the social sciences are typically not trained in how to add their perspective to practical real world issues with people who may or may not disagree with them. Um, so I tend to see a huge gap in how things are built and designed and who is actually using them and that problem as well as the responsibility to do better lies on both sides of the disciplinary spectrum. Um, but I think these disciplinary distinctions of like STEM versus social sciences versus humanities, they're all pretty useless when we're talking about global issues related to climate change, environmental justice, et cetera. And in my opinion, we no longer have the luxury of being intimately tied to whatever discipline we feel most aligned with. And it's time that we kind of roll up our sleeves and accept that doing good work is going to be itchy and annoying and uncomfortable. And we're going to inevitably mess up, but all of that friction is necessary to be and see the change that we want to be a part of in the world. Another reason that the social sciences are important is because you quite simply never know unless you ask. And I say that all the time. I am constantly surprised by people. Um, For example, we were once working in an area where a majority of community members were undocumented. And when we got on the topic of illegal dumping in the interviews, the community members there said that they actually wanted more surveillance and enforcement to curtail the dumping. Um, this definitely surprised me. I assumed that because so many people in the community were undocumented, they would want less surveillance and enforcement, mm-hmm. but that wasn't the case in this specific area. So I think because so much of the work that we do is place-based, I get to hear things that I never expect or anticipate. Um, and that's one thing that I love about talking to people is like, they'll always surprise you and they're going to complicate any existing narratives or assumptions that you unknowingly carry around with you. And it's also a good reminder that like no one group is a homogeny, you know, like Mm -hmm. everyone, there's so many, so many different perspectives within any existence. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and that's just always something that's, that I love being reminded of.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. No, I, I, I agree. And I think, you know, my taught history seemed to be missing those those stories of the people, those voices, which is why yeah. I found the information about wars really lacking. And then I do think the same thing could be said for science, technology, engineering and math stem in some ways. Right. Oftentimes it seems like the perspectives and stories of people are lacking or missing as you said and it's really an absolutely critical component I think you articulated that so well and I'm really grateful for your perspective in our work and everything that you do um, it's also one of the goals of the show right so we um, and that will only grow over time as we talk to more and more people um, we want to listen to as many different perspectives and, and see how they are connected because I think at the root of everything we're all just human so um, our guest today is an amazing combination of social science, humanities, and STEM, and I'm really excited for our conversation. Uh, so welcome, Mary. So glad to have you here on the Aqua Thread. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you emailed me out of the blue to express your interest in looking at plastics, and I found your background so interesting. I'm wondering if you can give us some context on yourself, um, where you grew up, how you ended up at the University of Georgia, and what you, a few things you've done here in the few years. I'm from Providence, Rhode Island,
2: so uh, a bit of a ways away. I'm the eldest child in a large-ish family, and I was drawn to UGA by the opportunities that it had. Um, The idea of an enormous school where any interest could be explored and any experience could be found was very compelling to me. While I've been here, I've had the opportunity to take a scuba diving class for credit, Mm -hmm. um, and I go ballroom dancing on Friday afternoons. I love that. So I'm so happy that I picked a school that really let me explore what I wanted to do.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's great. I love the mix of of dancing, you know, which I know you have a pretty, you know, heavy class load with two with two majors. So you must be quite busy in classes, but then being able to, to fit in something like dancing. I personally love dancing myself. So um, I think that's so great that that you're able to do that as well.
1: I totally agree. It's important to have things for yourself, especially when you're going through college. I wish that was something that I had figured out earlier. So our next question is like, what made you decide to major in both history and mathematics? And how does having both of those perspectives enrich your interests and or the work that you do?
2: Well, I didn't really decide to do a double major. When I started at UGA, I said, Oh, well, I'll just find something and major in it. And then I'll have even more time to explore on the side. But it turns out that if you take a class every semester in a certain discipline, you get a major at the end of it. So the fact that every semester I wanted to take history classes and math classes meant that I ended (laughs) up with a double major. Um, And I, I think they're a really good combination, actually, Um, They provide me with different skills, first of all, numerical analysis, writing long papers, and so on. But I think the key thing that interests me in history is trying to understand problems, and then the heart of mathematics is solving those problems. So it's a really
0: interesting combination.
1: Yeah. And it's great that you're able to use both sides of your brain for that.
0: Yeah. Oh, I I love that you that you're thinking mm-hmm. about you're tying together to, you know, what may be considered. I mean, I looked in history as sort of social science and humanities. It says it's kind of a combination of those. Plus, I mean, and math is so STEM related. So you you actually still tie those together in like this is describing a problem and math is about, you know, solving those problems. So just even exercising your brain in that in that way, um, to think about things, I think is, is so interesting. So you mentioned you're from Providence. I, I talked a little bit earlier about the significance of the river in my backyard. Um, I know the ocean and the coast have been a, a big impact on you in your life. I'd love for you to describe a bit more what the coast means to you um, and, you know, how that influenced you kind of personally in your life, but also in your in your work interest as well.
2: Growing up, I think the coast, the Atlantic Ocean, was a place where I gathered a lot with people. I would see my cousins at my grandmother's house, who lives um, not too far from the beach in New Jersey. Um, And when I got a little older in high school, my friends and I would go after school to the beach, or sometimes, sometimes not after school. Senior skip day was a tradition at my high school, and we would all pile onto the bus and go two hours down to the beach in Newport or other other cities down on the coast. And it was a wonderful time to see the ocean. It really, to me, it was like looking at the night sky, the starry night. Um, the ocean is so big and so powerful. You know, it really makes a person feel small. And that that was wonderful. But then... One year, I saw for the first time, or noticed for the first time, the beach regeneration barges floating off the coast. And it struck me that the ocean that I went to every year or multiple times a year wasn't a static thing that was always the same and could never be affected by people who are so small. It actually has been and is continuing to be affected by human actions in a honestly quite drastic way. Mm -hmm. So realizing that the ocean is changing is one of the things that has definitely inspired my work.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow, that's, yeah. I agree with feeling small when thinking about the ocean. There's nothing that will make you feel smaller than being on a 72-foot sailboat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, which I have done, Um, but... You're right. I mean, taken, you know, our impact, even though we seem small, the ocean 70% of our planet, um, we certainly are having a huge impact on it. Um, And, and that I think why influences a lot of a lot of people's work as well.
1: So, Mary, you've stated that your research on coal makes you think of plastics and resulting pollution. Can you describe how you connected these two things, and how do you see that relationship playing out? Does it continue or do the topics diverge now in your mind?
2: So I was studying this past semester at the Williams Mystic Maritime Studies Program, and one of my professors, Dr. Rona Cox, told me that these black rocks that I saw on the beach weren't naturally there. Coal is a rock, but the fact that it is appearing on Beaches in southern Rhode Island is not because it's, I don't know, breaking off of a seam in the bottom of the ocean. It was brought there by people. Um, And so it might be a little less obvious than a plastic bottle on the beach, but coal on beaches is anthropogenic. It's caused by human activities. And thinking about the scale of coal that I found on those beaches. Um, Sometimes, you know, multiple pieces of coal in just a few feet. And the scale of coal wrecks, it's much, much less than the amount of plastic that we have been putting into the oceans. I mean, it's been been accelerating over the past few years. So the fact that the coal is still visible on beaches a hundred years after these shipwrecks it just made me very, very worried about what plastic might might be happening with that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think your your comparison of those is is really interesting, and and we'll pro- we'll get into a little bit more of that later. But I want to focus on one part. You said it was coal wrecks, so shipwrecks. Um, so my son, who's now fourteen, when he was quite young, he was actually really interested in hearing about shipwrecks. He seemed to be uh, curious about the story of the Titanic, something that I had really not thought much about myself. Um, I do have to say, though, one of my favorite songs as a kid, my brother and I used to play the Gordon Lightfoot song about the, the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald over and over on 8-track, I might add. Um and that was, you know, about Lake Superior, which was a great lake that was only about two hours from my house, which looks like the ocean when you're standing on the shoreline. Anyway, I, I think this fascination about wrecks is actually pretty common because there was actually, there was lots of kids' books on shipwrecks that I could find to read to my son. Um, and you, you know, you recently wrote a paper on shipwrecks, and you know. We'll talk more about that, but I'm curious about why you think people are so interested in shipwrecks. Do you think they symbolize something bigger than the literal wreck itself? Absolutely. Um, I think a shipwreck
2: tells us that we haven't completely controlled this environment. I think the Titanic, obviously there was a huge loss of life on the Titanic, but I think the thing that sticks out to people a lot is that the ship was built as unsinkable.
0: Mm. Yeah.
2: Um, so shipwrecks, something that we've, a very small, fragile thing compared to the ocean that we've built to float on top of it. And then when things go wrong, shipwreck. But I think it's also a little bit deeper than that because shipwrecks connect the people living on the coast to the people sailing or boating who are in the wreck to the people who own the cargo that's being transported unwrecked. wrecked. One of the historians, I believe he's at the University of Florida, Jamin Wells, was a huge inspiration for my paper because he argues that shipwrecks were the main way that Americans interacted with the coast for centuries. The only time it would be worth going down to the beach is if you were trying to save people or if there was um, wreckage washing up that you could salvage.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. that was uh, that was fascinating to me, too. And the quote from his book, he's, he's at the University of West Florida, so he's right there on the coast, um, is, or a shipwreck is both, a physical object, the stranded or sunken vessel, and an idea, the story or narrative of the wrecking event itself. And, and you put that quote in the paper, which I think uh, was quite powerful. Yeah. And it's also,
1: I wonder if too, the shipwrecks were a way for people to interact with the coast and also for them to interact with other people who were coming from different places and ended up in the shipwreck. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's pretty, it's, it's interesting to think about. So the salvaging of ship parts, cargo and other objects from wrecks is, illustrator of the conservation of the times and actually quite circular in the sense that everything was considered to have value and people exerted a lot of time and effort to salvage all of these parts. And often there was some money to be made in this process, which was quite informal. Um, Today, more than 15 million people participate in the informal waste sector around the world. And in some cases, the informal sector is the only form of waste management available. So, Mary, what do you think of this comparison and observation? And what seems similar? And what's different about these two forms of circularity?
2: Well, a clear similarity is, in both cases, people got what use they could out of materials that were available to them. Um, There's a very interesting quote that I found from a Block Island historian who said all the harrows on Block Island had teeth made of ship bolts hmm. because people, when a ship wrecked, it would not be economically feasible to rebuild it often, so the materials would be repurposed by the people in the community. However, I think I think a key difference is the scale of this um, activity. Salvaging cargo from ships that wrecked in a certain community was not a career. It supplemented work as a fisher or a farmer. Um, Despite the honestly frighteningly high number of wrecks along the American coast every year in the late 1800s, it's still very rare for most individual communities to have a shipwreck in a given year. Mm. So it's not um, before the professionalization of salvage it was not something
0: to be relied on as a source of income yeah that makes sense this might be a good a good point for you to tell us what a moon cusser is though because they kind of well anyway why don't you if you can that would be great for you to describe that
2: yeah so moon cussers appear very very often in literary and um, fictional depictions of salvaging wrecks um, the word "mooncusser" is a lovely word. Comes from the idea that these brigands would light fires on the shore to lure unsuspecting ships in, and they would curse the moon on full moon nights when this kind of ploy would not be effective. It's. I'm not going to say that it never happened because I cannot prove a negative uh that would be very difficult but certainly the number of moon paled before the number of respectful citizens who would rescue unfortunate wrecked
0: sailors and then help salvage Mm -hmm. their cargo yeah well that that's that's good to hear
1: yeah it's just interesting that moon there's like fairly little evidence that that actually happened at the scale that it appeared in pop culture. And it just kind of reminds me of our cultural obsession with pirates and this idea of of like these bad actors that are like preying on globalized trade. It's it's an interesting thing that pops up in terms of like fears that we have,
0: Mm -hmm. I think. Right. Yeah. The story is much bigger than what the actual reality was. So Mary, you also wrote a scientific class paper um, during your same time here, or sort of in parallel with the shipwreck paper um, on the coal, which came from the shipwrecks and was found on the beach. And you talked a little bit about this earlier. Um, You told me this was kind of your first really science based paper, and I really enjoyed um, looking at it. And You looked at both the density and location of coal ending up on the shoreline, as well as some of its characteristics. So based upon the data that you found, um, what do you think, like what was one of the biggest drivers of coal ending up where it did or where it is now, which I'm sure is maybe different than where it landed 100 years ago, but maybe just tell us a little bit about why does coal get transported onto the shoreline and then pile up in different spots? Well,
2: coal, uh, if you've ever held a piece of it, is one of the least dense rocks that there is. So it doesn't, it's not like pumice, it doesn't float, but it it is more easily carried by currents and winds and whatever forces um, could be moving it. We know that there were a lot of wrecks of coal-carrying ships in the Block Island Sound area. And based on our research and the work of earlier students, we think that that coal has been circulating as pieces on the bottom of the ocean until the wave energy carries it onto the shore. Once it's on the shore, the interaction between wave energy and wind energy concentrates the coal pieces that we found towards the end of the sandy spit that we studied and Something very interesting, the energetic wave action of storms tends to bring more coal pieces ashore. So likely a combination of waves and wind Mm -hmm. decide the distribution of coal
0: on the shore. That makes a lot of sense. And I think you're absolutely right to relate that to plastic and plastic transport as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I totally agree Um, So, Mary, from the findings of your research on coal and shipwrecks, or from what you've heard about just, you know, being in that space, are there any health or environmental impacts on the people who were collecting the shipwreck or coal materials or on the people in local
2: communities? Yeah, both. First, when professional salvage was um, being invented in America, it was incredibly dangerous. It was right at the beginning of work underwater so they didn't have any scuba gear or anything it was it was before that TA Scott the salvage worker that I studied he got some kind of record for being underwater the longest and it was like a full day wow. which is not good for the health underwater work is continues to be very dangerous to this day and then for the people in the community, I think the clear danger is with coal smoke. The people who collected coal off the beaches took it to burn in their own homes, and coal is uh, coal smoke is very bad for the lungs. Uh, however, it was you know widely used at the time, so take that with a grain of salt.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, there's trace there's trace metals in coal, so even you know the coal dust um would be impactful and then certainly burning the material you'd have like the particulate matter that you would be uh breathing right away from from that combustion so relating this history that you've looked at to our current lifestyle and context and then the plastic that we're finding on beaches i know myself I've i've stood on a coastline and looked down at the waves and there was just a confetti of plastic just washing up on the shore, um, how do you think we should be looking at plastics sort of in our life? Or have you now, you know, thought about potential interventions to to plastic pollution, um, you know, just because you have this now historical context related to coal? I think the
2: thing that has stuck out to me most in the context of plastic pollution is the question of scale. There's one source that I read that describes drifts eight feet tall of coal washing up on a beach after um, a storm, which was then collected by the, the community members to heat their homes. But we need to work on keeping plastics, the plastics that we do use, very circular to recycle them, to reuse them, to use them in long lasting and important applications. And we need to use less because the amount of coal that was put onto that beach to create eight-foot drift coal pieces is minuscule compared to the amount of
0: plastic that's washed into the oceans on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. It's about a dump truck of plastic every minute that ends up in our ocean. So I think also when I was reflecting on this, you know, we're moving away from using coal now. I mean, not everywhere, but you know that's a part of our, our discussion related to fossil fuels and climate change, right? And so I think that there potentially could be a corollary as we look at the impacts that we're seeing from plastic. And you know, our, as you said, we need to be using it for very specific and important applications, necessary applications, not problematic applications if we can avoid it. Um, and so that reduction of use is you know starting with that material as well now. Yeah, I think it's
2: really interesting because when you consider where plastic comes from, it's petroleum, which is one of the sources of energy that has replaced coal mm-hmm. in many uses in our lives. Um, and coal on the particular island that I studied has been their only source of energy for many years. Until they um, built the first offshore wind turbines off of this island in oh, very cool. 2014. Yeah. So the I think the reduction of plastic goes along with the reduction of petroleum and coal mm-hmm. as energy sources.
0: That's a great point. I love that story. Yeah.
2: So what's
1: next for you, Mary? Outside of starting to study plastics with us now, what other projects or programs are you going to be participating in?
2: Well, I'm still trying to figure out what I might uh, do this summer, but I've started work at the library, um, which I really enjoy. I, I think it's important to make sure people have the ability to find the information that they need in their work. And I've also been working on some creative
0: projects, which I'm really looking forward to see how they turn out. Oh, cool. Um, I have to say the library was like one of my absolute favorite places as a kid. Um, I don't, you know, I, I, in, in my little small town, it was a a community building. Um, we're actually like our, our mayor's office and, and stuff was, and then there was, um, the library connected to that building and so like it was next to our park too so like if you had to go the bathroom we could go over to this building um but the library i would just like sit in the shelves and like to this day i just love the way books smell is that weird i don't think so Um, Okay, so for our final thought, part of the reason that we bring guests uh, on the show is to hear different perspectives. We know that systems will only change in a just and equitable way if we have representative perspectives and voices at the table. So we ask a similar question to every guest in terms of what we discussed today, which was... History, but lots of other topics as well. Um, What or whose voice do you think is either missing or would you like to see more amplified in this space? And as a second part to this question, how do we get that voice to the table?
2: I think the most and really important source to speak with and to hear from are people who live by the ocean, especially elders. They have seen the changes that the coastline has. Um, experienced, and they have a deep investment in the health and flourishing of our ecosystems. However, I think it's a slight problem to say bring them to the table, because the only way that I can think of to speak with these people who are deeply entrenched in their coastal communities is to go to their tables. Hang out in these spaces by the shore, by the pier, and talk with the people who are there, the people who are not seeking out the community response um, organizations or necessarily town hall meetings, but just the people who are living every day
0: on the coast. No, absolutely. I think being able, uh, and, and, you know, and being at the table can be metaphorically, right? And so what we need to do is go to them. So I really like that you answered the second part of that question. Like, what do we need to do? We need to go to them so that they can, they can express their perspectives and and those voices can be heard. So, um, Mary, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such a rich conversation. I look forward to more dialogue as you start to put your skills towards plastics. Please keep us updated on all your adventures as you continue through your schooling and career. And to all our listeners, thank you for taking time out of your day to join us on the Aquathread.